For over 100 years, a major evolutionary fraud has been at work in our society, in our schools, and in our homes. So what is this lie that has been around so long, and how has it affected us? Stay tuned. Heckel said that at the different stages of embryonic development, it was recapitulating the evolutionary process. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. It's amazing how something can be proven scientifically and biblically wrong, but still have an impact on people's lives. What we're talking about is a series of fake drawings by a 19th century German scientist that show great similarities between a human embryo and those of certain animals. So what has been the impact of this fraudulent scheme? Join us for the next 15 minutes as we explain Heckel's theory of recapitulation and see how it has affected society as a whole. Simply stated, Ernst Heckel taught that during gestation, the embryo goes through an abbreviated evolutionary cycle. Doug Phillips is founder and president of Vision Forum. Ernst Heckel had an agenda. He lived at a time period when there was tremendous disputation against the Bible, when rationalism had entered the church and entered the scientific academy. Heckel was a fellow who sought to disprove scripture by coming up with scientific theories that would somehow uh, give meaning and coherence to the issue of origins. Dr. Thomas Kindle is founder and president of Reasons for Faith Apologetics Ministries in Eagle Point, Oregon. Thomas Huxley was known as Darwin's bulldog, but we could say that Haeckel was, in essence, the equivalent of the Apostle Paul in his adamance and going out and preaching this on his own time at his own expense to the public, to anyone who would listen. And people in the mid to late 1800s did listen to Dr. Haeckel. Doug Phillips tells us about the famous recapitulation drawing. Basically, what the picture showed was a series of embryos, and these were showing different stages of embryonic development. One was a pig, another was a bull, there was a rabbit, there was a man, and initially, the embryos look alike, but as they proceed, they take on their individual forms. Now, what was Heckel trying to say? In Heckel's view, this was convincing evidence for evolution. What Heckel said was that at the different stages of embryonic development, it was recapitulating the evolutionary process. So, for example, a human being during the early, the first trimester, uh, was really like an aquatic creature. It was developing gills. It really wasn't human. It was going through the process of evolution. And he said this applied uh, to all different types of animals. And the theory became known as embryonic recapitulation theory, or ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny. To prove his point, Heckel claimed he had drawn the pictures as he had seen them in these different stages. Ernst Heckel had to fabricate the very pictures he was setting before people. He did a magnificent job of creating a fraud. He actually drew gill slits in where there were no gill slits, and he created a fraudulent picture in an image that gave people the impression that human life paralleled evolutionary development according to Heckel's theory and later Darwin's theory as well. Heckel's theory came under fire in the 1870s, and by the early 1920s was proven to be false. But Dr. Kindle tells us that it wasn't until the 1990s that someone decided to see just how fraudulent the drawings were. M.K. Richardson, an evolutionist embryologist, he decided to get photographs, actual photographs, of the embryos of a fish, salamander, turtle, chicken, rabbit, and human at the developmental stages where supposedly Heckel had drawn them. Then he compared with those actual photographs of what the embryos really look like. And when you see the two together, it's just shocking. I mean, the degree of fraud 
the degree of gross dissimilarity is just plain as the nose on your face. You don't have to be an expert in embryology to see that the fraud done here was absolutely massive, absolutely without any justification whatsoever. He basically drew pictures that looked essentially the same, and when you compare them to the actual photographs, they are grossly dissimilar. And thus, his fraud was worse than we ever realized in history. And many popular evolutionists acknowledge that Heckel's theory has been thoroughly discredited. Let me quote what Dr. M.K. Richardson, who is an evolutionist, admitted after looking at this evidence. He said, and I quote, This is one of the worst cases of scientific fraud. It's shocking to find that somebody one thought was a great scientist was deliberately misleading. It makes me angry when he, referring to Heckel, what he did was to take a human embryo and copy it, pretending that the salamander and the pig and all the others look the same at the same stage of development. They don't. These are fakes. End of quote. So why then is the so-called embryonic law of recapitulation still found in many public school textbooks? I think that there are two major reasons. One of those is that it can be documented that Darwin himself said that the evidence of embryological recapitulation was, quote, second to none as evidence for his theory of evolution. Now, if Darwin was mistaken, and he said the primary evidence, the evidence better than anything else in his entire book on the origin of species, the numero uno, the primary evidence, is embryological recapitulation. And that has been proven by the advance of science to be totally false, then that totally undermines Darwin's credibility. Secondly, because many liberals and evolutionists today feel that evolution is giving them the right to be their own god, that they're not beholding to any higher power, and therefore they have a right to determine their own destiny the way they see fit, including matters such as abortion. They have the right to reproductive liberty, as they claim. And, of course, if the child in the womb is a human being, then to kill it would be murder. Of course, they don't believe that humans were created by God in His image, so they don't feel that they're beholding to that kind of morality. Unfortunately, the belief in Heckel's fraudulent theory did not stop with the subject of unborn children. Doug Phillips. Heckel's influence on the theory of evolution is almost unparalleled. Uh, next to Darwin and a few others, no one had the kind of influence that Ernst Heckel had because by demonstrating or attempting to demonstrate that in the area of embryology, a life that develops is really simply recapitulating the evolutionary process. He paved the way for people in every area from academics to child development theory to social theory to political theory, you name it, every single major academic discipline to take on the evolutionary mantra and to say, you know what? If evolution is the basic paradigm for life, if we see this in the womb, if we see this in the fossil record, it's got to be true everywhere else. We're going to use this as our basic reference point for interpreting all of reality. And this is precisely what happened. This, of course, led to the developments in the 19th century of men like G. Stanley Hall. Social child development theorist G. Stanley Hall was a contemporary of Heckel's and picked up on the recapitulation idea. And G. Stanley Hall had a theory. His theory was, well, if it's true that in the womb a baby is simply recapitulating evolution. If the biogenetic law of Heckel is true, then why isn't that also true for child development? Why is it only true 
inside the womb. His theory was that a child would go through the very process of evolutionary development outside the womb that he did inside the womb. And this led to further incorrect thinking. So what we need to do, G. Stanley Hall posited, was we need to break up the time periods of a person's life coincidental with his evolutionary development and allow child development to exist within the group of people who's at that particular stage of evolutionary development. What does that mean? Very simple. It means that three-year-olds should be with other three-year-olds. Means that six-year-olds should be with six-year-olds. Means that twelve-year-olds should only be with twelve-year-olds. And by the way, this was in direct opposition to the historic Christian uh, pattern of families of different ages and generations interacting with each other, drawing from each other. Uh, in fact, even the whole concept of the one-room schoolhouse, which existed in the 19th century and long before, people of all different ages and backgrounds learning together based on their abilities, not necessarily on the basis of their physical development. Then, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, a man by the name of John Dewey stepped into the picture. John Dewey borrowed from Ernst Haeckel. He borrowed from G. Stanley Hall. He said, wait a second, if it's true that a child goes through these different stages, if it's true we want to segregate on the basis of that, if it's true that this child represents this stage of evolution, then that's how we want to build our government school model. And, of course, many of our listeners may or may not know that John Dewey was the architect of the modern humanist movement in America, and he saw Heckel's biogenetic law, G. Stanley Hall's vision for applying that to child development as the basis for building a distinctively humanistic government school model. And that's exactly what he did. He brought that straight to the classroom, and he superimposed upon the very training methodologies of our students of the 19th century, and many of them exist to this very day today, notions that came straight from this false theory of the biogenetic law. And this led up to the 1960s and 70s when child development theorist Dr. Benjamin Spock became very popular with his evolutionary child-rearing ideas. In the 20th century, it became a radical individualism with respect to the relationship between the child and the parent, and no one did more to further this than Dr. Spock. Here is a man who borrowed directly from Darwin, borrowed directly from Heckel, borrowed directly from... Uh, these theorists of the 19th century, and using this biogenetic law model, would then turn to parents and say, parents, you need to treat him as an independent creature who has the right to make up his mind on his own, to evolve on his own, to develop himself on his own. After all, evolution is simply a product of chance development. We have to do the same thing with children. We don't guide it formally. Men evolve through naturalistic processes. Matter in motion, that's all that man is. In contrast to Dr. Spock's teaching, Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Dr. Kindle. And it's important that the child be taught as he's growing up that there are consequences, that there is right and wrong, and that if you choose wrongly, there will be serious consequences. And letting them do whatever they want to do would be disastrous, according to biblical revelation, because the Bible says we have a natural tendency or bent towards sin and selfishness. And if you don't tend to curb that, if you don't tend to let the child see improper, selfish, sinful, wrongful behavior has bad consequences, then there's going to be no limit uh, to the wickedness that they will eventually want to do. I believe even Solomon mentioned that in his wisdom, that if there's not swift and sure uh, discipline and judgment, then there'll be no restraint on the wickedness of man. But the problem is the scripture is so clear that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of correction will drive it far from him. It says if you spare the rod, you hate your child. Now, that doesn't mean the Bible advocates 
physical abuse or going beyond the reasonable limits of corporal correction, but they do need to be spanked. You know, and this is something that Spock came out against and became famous, and a lot of people began to follow his teaching. Doug Phillips. The results of Dr. Spock's theories were simply devastating. What we saw was a generation of ungrateful, rebellious, dishonoring children, because, of course, if you don't follow the biblical admonitions which are given in the Word of God to lovingly disciple, to train, in fact, the Scripture says that if you love your children, you're going to discipline them. And a parent that doesn't discipline his children, actually, the Bible says, hates his children. That's a strong word, but that's right straight from the Word of God. And so Spock put children at enmity with their parents by drawing from this heckle-oriented biogenetic law view of child development. Utterly devastating. So we can see how Heckel's fraudulent embryonic law of recapitulation has caused so much damage down through the years. Here we are now in the first decade of the 21st century. Now Heckel's drawings remain, his theories have been discredited, but the overarching emphasis of the biogenetic law still remains in the thinking of many child development theorists. It still serves as the premise behind what people study when they go and they take psychology classes and they get their PhDs in social development theory and various things like that. And so the legacy of Ernst Heckel remains and is a dangerous legacy. Thank you for joining us for another fascinating broadcast on Science, Scripture, and Salvation. If you'd like to learn more about science and creation research, you can find us on the web at www.icr.org. Join us again next time as we investigate another intriguing topic on Science, Scripture, and Salvation. Thanks for tuning in. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.